0: Hi there, I'm Michelle Musi, the irreverent,
1: feisty, but irresistible author of Love Capades. And I'm Sally Kaplan, Michelle's partner in crime as her editor and clever co-host on this audio adventure. Welcome everyone to the Love Capades podcast. Welcome to episode 13 of the Love Capades podcast. Last time, we heard all about Michelle's affair with the alluring banker from its sexy start to fateful finish. Theirs was a powerful attraction, full of romance, even love, but also fraught with challenges. So eventually their story ends not with a bang, but a whimper. There were a lot of tears along the way as well. Michelle then described to us her mother and how she fit into the story. Finally, Our love heroine asked herself the question, is it worth taking the risk to love if your heart is broken in the end? Not surprisingly, she concluded, it's always better to take the ride than sit on the sidelines. So let's find out what she's up to next.
0: So, this chapter is called, More Good Times on the Horizon. During that dynamite-detonated summer when my mother died and the banker left town, Bobby made one of his sporadic appearances. Remember him, my first real boyfriend from high school? I was still reeling from Lance's departure, so I was happy to see Bobby. He looked tan and rusted with those same pearly whites flashing. Pretty darn cute, actually. He was just checking in while in town on business. He sat across from me on my flower-covered chintz love seats, how appropriate, and we caught up on life, especially our respective love lives. I regaled him with my bank lover tale, and he shared that he was dating his secretary in Orlando, Florida. Then, out of the blue, he blurted out a revealing truth I'd never heard. He said, My mother on her deathbed told me that Michelle Musi was the best woman I'd ever known and that I should marry her. Well, that instantly sucked all the oxygen out of the room. What was I supposed to do with that? And more importantly, what was he going to do about it? Why was he telling me this? Hope still does spring eternal, does it not? Maybe at age 40-ish, we might actually be able to make it work. I was still young enough to have children, after all. This was a different kind of bombshell, and I allowed myself to wonder where it would lead. Bobby left that day with the pregnant possibility lingering in the air, and I never heard another word about it. (laughs) I mean, really. He ended up marrying the secretary, his third wife, by that time. Our road map had intersected once again, but led to another dead end. What was it with these cad like characters? Or what was it with me? Seems I had no trouble attracting men, although I would have denied it if you'd asked me. But staying in the buggy with them long enough to get to a long-term partnership was another matter. What signals was I emitting? Did I truly want to remain single and independent as I'd concluded from my mother's behavior? Truth told, I've never been totally sure, although actions do speak volumes. There are two main parts to being a successful couple, the passion part and the partnership part. I've observed that it's rare to have both at the same time. Those are the home-run marriages. Sometimes men choose the partnership component to keep their lives running smoothly and allow themselves to find passion outside matrimony. No wonder there are so many affairs. Perhaps in my case, I chose the excitement aspect and eschewed the work of partnership. Or was it all a way of maintaining my independence? Oh, hell, I'm still sorting it all out. The following spring, I lucked into another of my favorite love capades. Because I have lots of family and some good friends in the St. Helena area, Northern California's famous wine region, I had joined the country club part of the chic Meadowood Resort. When in town, I could play tennis or golf on the nine hole course, or even pursue their newest craze, lawn croquet. This wasn't the backyard variety, but a more serious game often referred to as chess on grass. It's a sport of strategy, skill, and tactics played on a perfectly groomed croquet pitch of exact dimensions. And as a participant, you were required to wear all white, which added a touch of elegance. The owner of Meadowood decided to develop Proquet as a draw to his resort, so he hired an Aussie named Damon Bidencope to get things rolling. Damon cleverly organized a world-class croquet tournament in 1989 which became a cherished tradition at the resort. He invited all the top players from around the globe, arranged receptions and dinners for the participants and paying gallery members, even set up lodging for the players. The stage was well set for an enticing event. I recruited one of my girlfriends to accompany me for the three-day weekend. We arrived on a Friday afternoon, just at the time the players were practicing on the pitch. My friend Phyllis and I immediately noticed a most good-looking gentleman, tall and slender with light brown, well-groomed hair, and a patrician face. Since Phyllis was a petite and pretty brunette, I automatically assumed if either of us could snag the man, it would be she. My intractable lack of confidence in this arena surfacing yet again. There was a refreshment table set up next to the playing area, so the two of us wandered over there to catch a few nibbles. Just then, Carl, as he was called, chatted with us casually and then returned to his practice session. That evening, there was a reception at Domain Mom Winery on the Silverado Trail. Phyllis and I, gussied ourselves up, and made our way to the party. It was a festive affair with lots of champagne flowing and a buffet of delicious dinner food. Right away, I spotted Carl across the room as he was heading our way. He literally sidled up to me and asked if I would join him for dinner. My inner voice said, Wow, this is unexpected and I could see Phyllis's face curdle. (laughs) Clearly, she wasn't pleased about this turn of events. Next, Carl and I, along with his croquet partner and Phyllis, found a place to sit and enjoy our meal. There was a loud din in the room, so my elegant dinner partner leaned in closely and asked if I would accompany him to the after-party taking place at Falcon Crest, another of the area's famous wineries. You may remember the popular nighttime soap opera on TV by the same name, which aired for nine seasons and showcased the California wine industry. Along with Jane Wyman and Robert Foxworth, the juiciest character was the naughty nephew played by Lorenzo Lamas. It turned out that Carl had been given the guest house at Falcon Crest as his accommodation. I explained to Phyllis that I would be going to the next party with Carl in his car. She had driven, so she was able to get there on her own. I could tell she was angry with me, but this opportunity was too delicious to pass up. As the sun was setting, Carl and I drove along the famous Silverado Trail. The 30-mile stretch of road first became well-known during the mid-1850s, shortly after silver was discovered in Napa Valley. Now it is famous for the liquid silver, which has more recently put the area on the world map because of the 40 or more wineries that hug the narrow winding road. I was wearing a flouncy French skirt and a shoulderless black top and my blonde locks were bobbing and weaving in the silky air which wafted in from the open car window. Carl broke the silence in his lilting European accent. Would you like to spend the night with me? This was another crotch-crimping moment along my own sexual trail. I didn't answer at first and then said, I'll have to think about that. (laughs) This made me feel very desirable, and yet I really meant that I'd have to think about it. Carl's story, which he'd revealed at dinner, was both alluring and off-putting. He had emigrated from Germany, where his family had owned sizable land holdings, to Ireland, where he'd acquired a tara like castle surrounded by hundreds of acres of farmland in County Meath. His name contained the prefix von, V-O-N, which I knew meant some kind of nobility, and he was married. I'd attracted another titled and gentrified guy into Mish's spiderweb. But because he was married, I had to face, yet again, the ongoing conundrum. Go for the fling or dodge a bullet. The Falcon Crest Winery had set up tables and strings of twinkling lights alongside one of its vineyards, and a wooden dance floor as well. More wine flowed and mellow sounds lured us out to dance under the stars. Carl's erotic question hung in the night air as he held me close. How could I say no to his invitation? Well, in the end I said yes, and to this day, I am so happy I did. A well-bred European man knows intrinsically how to treat a woman. Generalities aside, American men, for the most part, aren't taught the same finesse or appreciation in dealing with women. Just as with my experiences in Italy, even if a relationship is not headed toward anything serious, it is elevated to something sophisticated and self-contained in the moment. The duration does not dictate the significance in such matters. Once I gave the silent signal, Carl took me by the hand, and we walked back to his guesthouse quarters. There, he disrobed me, and we made love for the first time. Oh, my goodness. Phyllis had driven back to our room at Meadowood by this time. When I got back there around midnight and walked in, she was standing with her hands on her narrow hips and squealed. You slept with him, didn't you? I replied, of course not. Don't be ridiculous. It didn't seem like a moment to reveal my delicious secret. So the next morning, with feathers unruffled for the moment, Phyllis and I made our way down to the croquet area just before the official matches were to begin. What a seductive scene. The pristine green croquet pitch with the regulation wickets placed just so, all damp with crisp morning dew, awaited the white-clad combatants. While we waited for the action to begin, Carl walked up behind me and placed his finger in the nape of my neck and flicked a lock of my hair. I have never forgotten the sensual shockwave of that moment. Both a thank you for what had already happened and an invitation of more to come. Gazinga! Watching croquet played at the high level is captivating. So there was much to capture our attention. In my case, a double dose of fascinating was on display. At the point where the matches paused for a lunch break, Carl came over and invited me to join him. I thought we'd be grabbing a bite there at courtside, but he had a different idea. I was grateful that Phyllis took her cue without a fuss, that she'd be lunching alone. We drove back to his digs at Falcon Crest, where he cooked me a steak lunch, and for dessert, we enjoyed each other in bed. He continued to reveal his urbane, classy, yet authentic self. It felt as if the universe were paying me back for past travails in the love department. That evening, another she-she dinner was on the books. Phyllis and I donned our fanciest get-ups and joined the event at the Maryvale Tasting Room, right in downtown St. Helena. Talk about ambiance. The room resembled a wine cellar with dark wood walls and ceiling. A long, narrow table filled the center space, and on each side there were low-lit alcoves adding a glow to the room. It screamed romance, as if I needed any help to feel romantic. Sitting beside me was the alluringly clad aristocrat. He wore a European-fitted dark jacket buttoned to show off his slender physique, a white shirt unbuttoned at the neck, and a green silk pocket scarf. What a gala party, complete with intriguing people, delectable food, and fine wine. As Carl was known by many of the participants to be married, he was being circumspect throughout the evening. It made me feel a bit estranged, but I later figured out why he was acting that way. And he made up for it after the dinner ended. Phyllis, by the way, had figured out that Carl and I were now lovers, so she graciously gave us space to be together. We drove a ways outside of town, found a picturesque vineyard, and parked alongside. There was still a dim sunset glow over the verdant vines and a fragrance of fertile earth which we could smell through the open windows. Here we made that kind of athletic love one does in a car. Sizzling, urgent, sexy lovemaking. It reminded me of the time Nicola had taken me in the Olive Grove outside Palermo. There is an interesting postscript to this part of the story. I mentioned that I had good friends in the area. We'd parked in a place close to where one of the families actually lived. The next day, I had occasion to speak to the husband, and for some reason which I'll never know. He mentioned that on his run that morning, he'd had to pick up a used condom along the trail. I've always wondered if he believed I was implicated, if it was just a coincidence. Guess I'll never know. The tournament finals were on Sunday. It turned out to be a blistering hot day, making it uncomfortable for the players and the fans. I'm a total wuss in the heat, and I was truly wilting. At day end, my gorgeous German lover came over and could tell how depleted I was. He suggested that he drive me home to Menlo Park, and then he'd leave the next morning to go to the San Francisco airport for his flight home. Carl's plan was music to my ears. By this time, Phyllis knew the drill and let me know she was fine to drive herself home. Thank you, Phyllis. When we arrived in my hometown, Carl asked that I take him to a good grocery store. We stopped there first, and he purchased fixings to make me dinner. I mean, melt my heart. A man, like my father, who knew how to cook and wanted to take care of me. In a word, it was bliss. We spent the evening together as I recuperated and eventually made love in my queen-sized bed. The next day, Carl flew back to his castle in Ireland. What a whirlwind weekend it had been, filled with the art of seduction, the delight of discovered passion, and the true essence of romance. Not a detail have I forgotten. Treasures each and every one. Carl kept in touch with me over the next several years with phone calls and letters, but we never saw each other again. He even invited me to come to Ireland for his 50th birthday party. How was that going to work with his wife, I wondered. But he beckoned and I decided to go. One of my cousins, who had relocated to Britain, was also having a 50th birthday party at the same time in Scotland. A double adventure sounded like good fun to me. But in the end, I canceled the trip for a variety of reasons, so I never saw Carl again. Geography certainly has interfered with many of my love connections. At the same time, my travels have put me on the path to so many enchanting escapades. The plus and the minus of love. and of life. Please indulge me another short detour to tell you about my one-of-a-kind father. Carl's culinary expertise reminded me so much of him, so this seems like a good spot to describe more fully the man who influenced me more than any other. Perhaps it will help enhance your understanding about how my life has unfolded. My father, fondly called Muzzy, made an indelible impression on people because of his humongous personality, wit, and joie de vivre. I could write an entire book about his antics, his unforgettable expressions, which are branded forever in my mind, and his in-your-face behavior. But for now, I'll give you the highlights. He was born to two immigrant parents, a mother from Paris and a father from Lausanne. Their story is fascinating in itself. Grandma Germaine was banished by her evil father, a footman to a wealthy family along the Champs-Élysées, and raised in New York by her maternal grandmother. She learned to weave wigs as a young girl and became a hairdresser who worked well into her 80s. Germaine's strikingly handsome husband, Victor Emile, with dark hair and bushy mustache to match, had been classically trained as a French chef at Geneva's famous Culinary Arts Academy. He'd been sent to America by his Swiss family in hopes that he would receive life-saving care for his tuberculosis. He and my grandmother met and married in Boston, and while living there, had a daughter and a son. They eventually moved to Palo Alto, California for both the schools and the good weather for Papa. In spite of this, Victor succumbed to his disease when the children were still very young. Grandmama was left to raise her chickadees alone. Largely uneducated herself, somehow Germaine managed to get her daughter into Cal Berkeley and her son into Stanford. It was a gritty feat. Buzzy, his do-over for Maurice, a name he hated, was a brilliant kid who skipped three grades in school. He was also a gifted athlete, but the family was poor, so Dad had to work all through school, even when he received a scholarship for college. While he worked hard, he played even harder. He had a Rolodex-like repertoire of a zillion jokes at the ready. He drank as if booze were about to run out. Martinis, Old Fashions, Manhattans, and good red wine, of course. He cooked amazing meals without ever consulting a recipe, and he was a wizard at the backyard barbecue. Muzzy drove himself hard, so he pushed my brother and me hard as well. Saying he was competitive is an understatement. And confident to the max, he believed he could do anything. That is, until he had a life-altering stroke in his mid-forties. Even this he overcame, living until he was 88. Through all the years, his chutzpah often ticked people off, but mostly they loved him for his bigger-than-lifeness and legendary zest for living. I've always loved you too, Dad. I have to admit, you did a darn good job of forging your daughter in your image. With a few exceptions, I'm not a drinker, and I can't tell a joke to save my soul. (laughs) You instilled in me the will and the way to succeed in business, which was avant-garde and inspired me to become a trailblazer in that way. But, and this has been one of the great dichotomies of my life, you also made it difficult for me to be in a loving lasting relationship that gave me the chance for children of my own. So before I finish this episode, I'd like to insert another one of my love-bite tidbits. The year after I met Carl at Meadowood, he wrote to say he couldn't attend the tournament that year. Disappointed, I went anyway because I'd had so much fun the year before. It would have been hard to match the magic of Carl of the Castle. But I did meet a handsome Londoner named David, who was a Jaguar salesman and a very good dancer. Sweet and attentive, he was either too shy or too proper to pursue any hanky panky. He made sure, however, I learned how to pronounce properly the elegant car's name, Jaguar. Better than a jab in the fanny with a sharp stick, his dad would say.
1: All righty. So, Michelle, <laughs> if there was, what's the German word for ooh-la-la when we talk about Carl? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think ooh-la, ooh-la-la still works. Maybe maybe la la is universal. <laughs> In the European sense, and the romantic language sense. But before we get to Carl, let, let, let's go in order if we can. So Bobby, your first boyfriend, shows up and actually tells you what his mother told him on her deathbed, that you were the woman that got away, right?
0: <laughs> what she said was, the only good woman you've ever known is Michelle Musi
1: and you should marry her. That's what she said. And so he's telling you this, and of course, it leaves you wondering what to do about what he just said, right? And then he disappeared. He never got back to you after that? Yeah, so he drops this bombshell, which
0: of course makes me think, well, gee, maybe we do have a chance to be together after all this time. He was between marriages at that point. So he was single, I was single, I was 40, I could have had children maybe this could work, I thought. So then he leaves and I didn't hear another peep from him until I found out he'd married his freaking secretary. <laughs> what so what what was that about? Why did he do that, that? At this point in time, it makes me think he was really a rascal. Mm-hmm.
1: Why did he put that out there? What for? Well, at that point, how did it make you feel? I mean, was it terribly painful for you or was it? At that point, I I was thinking, wow, well, this is intriguing. Maybe this could actually work.
0: Maybe he, he and I will end up together after all these years. That's what I was thinking. But then time weeks go on and I don't hear anything. I'm just thinking, well, that doesn't add up. And then I found out he'd married the secretary, which
1: didn't make me happy. Did not make you happy, of course not. But there was an interesting self-reflection. I think you had after that, which is something like you said, it seems I had no trouble attracting men. But staying in the buggy, I think you used the term, long enough to get to a long-term partnership was a whole different matter. And you self-reflected asking yourself, well, what signals was I emitting? Did I just want to be independent? And, and then you I think you even said, you don't really know. It's still It's still a puzzle to you. Is that correct? That's
0: correct, and honestly, I have not completely figured it all out. (laughs) In other words, part of me, of course, wanted to maintain my independence for reasons I've said over and over, and part of me still had that desire to be in a loving, committed relationship and even have the the chance for children. So inside me, it was always a taffy pull, and so. In cases like the one with Bobby returning and putting that bombshell out in the airwaves, again, I was caught up in, what is it that I really want? What signals am I putting out there? And because I think I was confused internally, the signals were confusing. Mm
1: -hmm. That's interesting that you can look back and say that. But you also went on to define, interestingly, your version of what a successful couple would be. I think you want to tell us a little bit more about that?
0: Well, as I say, I think there are two parts to a good relationship. It's the passion part and the partnership part. And passion is important, but being able to partner with one another and respect one another, to see life the same way, it is critically important. And I'm not sure that, well, I think it's actually unusual for both of those things to be equally present and working. So I think often, and maybe I'm a little biased here, but I think often men marry for the partnership part and they later on decide to get some of the passion part off campus, as it were.
1: (laughs) Well, you actually said no wonder there's so many affairs. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it makes me reflect, you know, (laughs) are are human beings really meant to be just one-on-one?
0: Monogamous. Well, they're meant to be monogamous.
1: Or is marriage a a confine that we choose to be monogamous? Anyway, it brings up some interesting questions. So then let's get to the meat of the matter in this wonderful episode. And I I think you called him Carl of the Castle. (laughs) (laughs) And I I love the setup. I, I love the imagery, the scene that is painted with this croquet game and people dressed in white. And it sounds enchanting. It it truly does. Describe us the scene where you first met him, where you first set eyes on him.
0: Well, as I said, I had decided to join Meadowood, which was a five-star resort, but they also had a country club component. So because I had family in the area and friends, I decided to join the country club. And so before this encounter with Carl, I used to go up there and play tennis and tennis tournaments and play golf. And then all of a sudden they added this Croquet component to the resort. And they created this gorgeous croquet pitch. So here I decided to go to this tournament that had been arranged and arrived and see the gorgeous setup with the croquet pitch and and all the the greenery around. It's a beautiful setting, this resort. So um, Phyllis and I sat down and we were watching them practice their croquet. And then all of a sudden we walked over to the refreshment table. And this man that we both had been ogling sidled over, started talking to us.
1: He took
0: a few munchies, and then he went back to practice.
1: But what hit me about this part of the story when when you later saw him was that you described Phyllis as quite cute, and you are making this self-judgment that if he's going to choose anyone, it's going to be her, right? You actually said that. And who does he choose? I don't know. So what was going on with you, Michelle? You're so down on yourself.
0: (laughs) Well, it was just, it was an imprint, a program I had. You know how sometimes when you are young, you make a decision about something and that program stays in your brain forever? Well, this was a program that I had adopted that was pretty much erroneous, but Once again, here I'm in a situation where there's a man, an attractive man, and he can make a choice of the pretty Phyllis or the blonde Michelle. And I decided right off the bat, well, he's going to choose Phyllis. But guess what? He
1: didn't. But what you're saying, what's inside that is that you didn't feel as pretty as her. And clearly, you know, that wasn't the case. So... Let's move in further. So you have a meal together, and I believe it's with Phyllis and his croquet partner as well.
0: Let me just clarify, yeah. So we were invited to all these shindigs they were having over the weekend. And so the first one was at Domain Mom. And so Phyllis and I arrived, and I could see Carl across the room, and he was hellbent to seek us out. So he was heading over And instead of going for Phyllis, he leans in and says, would you please join me for dinner? So he'd made his choice. And at the time, I could see that Phyllis was pissed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, she wasn't the chooser. Right, right, right. And then we were having dinner. So we sat down, the four of us, because he had a partner that he played croquet with. And so Phyllis was with that guy and I was with Carl. And then because it was so noisy in there, he leans in and he says, well, I'd like to take you to the party that's after this one. Will you come with me?
1: And of course I said, yes. But I love where, where he takes you. I mean, Falcon Crest, like I remember that show. I don't know how many listeners will remember that show, but this whole scene really is like out of a TV show. I mean, the, the luxurious landscape, the fine wine, the very enchanted European flair. I love the way you describe Silverado Trail, that it used to be for silver, but now it was the liquid kind. It's just fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So here you are driving along.
0: Yeah, and then, then this unbelievable, I mean, truly Unbelievable scene happens. It's a beautiful evening. We're driving along this winding road. The (laughs) windows are down in the car. My hair is blowing out the window. (laughs) And he says in this sexy European voice, would you like to spend the night with me?
1: (laughs) Oh, dear. Then I think you said something that cracks me up. Your words, crotch crimping. (laughs) I know.
0: It was very crotch-grimping. And the thing was, so I said, well, I'm going to have to think about that. And it wasn't just a ploy, because I was going to have to think about that. Of course, my crotch wanted to go for it, but he was married. It was that damn it was that married thing again. Am I going to go off with a married man and have my heart broken or am I going to refrain? So that's why I said I have to, I'm going to have to think about that.
1: But what's so wonderful about this story in comparison to the last heartbreaking episode with Lance is that you do go mm-hmm. forward with this, but and and you know there might be some heartbreak, but actually it seems like a beautiful in-the-moment experience without the tremendous heartbreak. So, yes, you went with him, and it sounds like you're glad you did. <laughs> oh,
0: that's an understatement. <laughs> I mean, then, all right, so picture the scene. So we get to Falcon Crest, and the winery had, had put this dance floor out, and these twinkling lights draped in the trees, and the atmosphere was just heady. It was just heady, heady. It was just great. So we're out dancing, and I hadn't answered the question yet. So it was very erotic dancing. And finally, <laughs> finally, I said yes, and he took me by the hand back to his very fancy guest house digs. And we made love. And it was so romantic.
1: (laughs) My crotch is still crimping. Your crotch is crimping. You're making everyone's crotch crimp. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, other people's crotches are probably crimping now, too. And then you go back to the room that you shared with Phyllis, and she (laughs) screams at you. You slap. With him, didn't you? And I love your answer. You say no. Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> and why did you decide not to say anything? Then you just couldn't. You just couldn't bring yourself to say anything. Then. Well,
0: it was. It was too. It just had happened. It was too delicious. It was too personal. I and I didn't like her accusation. I mean, she literally was standing there with her hands <laughs> on her hips, accusing me, accusing me of being a no, woman. And I so when she says you slept with him, didn't you? And I said. <laughs> Don't be ridiculous.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Ha! Oh my God, it was very funny. And then the seduction continues because the next time when you see him is at the croquet game, right? And I think you said he walked up behind you. It was the next morning. The next morning. Yeah. And something with the way he touched you, just remind us.
0: Okay, so Phyllis and I are sitting along the side of the croquet pitch and it was pristine. Nobody had walked on it yet. It was all dewy and inviting. And we're waiting for the show to start and all of a sudden behind me, I didn't see him because he was behind me. I feel this finger in the nape of my neck and it was like an electric shock wave. I mean, it It was like, uh, my whole body was like, oh, my gosh. So it was very erotic. I'll never forget it.
1: Well, there was definitely an electricity. I mean, there was definitely a strong electric attraction between both of you. You know, really, really something. Really, really something.
0: Yeah, just the fact that just a finger could send me into practically an orgasmic fit. <laughs>
1: Well, what also hits me is that you remember that moment as if it were yesterday. I do. This really must have been very impressive, made a huge impression upon you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the whole sequence, the whole romantic
0: sequence, the way it unfolded. It was like, you know, it's it's as if I am a screenwriter and I'm writing this romantic comedy or romantic story. And that scene that whole episode, that whole thing with Carl. Was so delicious. I mean, you, I can see it up on the screen, and I certainly can see it in the screen of my mind, and I will never forget it.
1: Well, also, I think what followed is during the lunch break, he takes you back and he cooks you lunch and then more wonderful lovemaking. But it's something you said, which was that I think, if I'm remembering it correctly, it was something like this it felt as if the universe was paying you back for the past difficulties you had in the love department. So it was like a healing time in ways, no? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: I mean, clearly throughout my life, I've had all these love capes, and some of them have been funny, some of them have been delicious, some have been sad and tragic, some of them have even been dangerous. But here was this perfectly romantic situation with a totally elegant, intelligent, handsome, refined,
1: romantic man. Mm -hmm. And in fact, noble, right? He was literally from nobility.
0: He literally was, uh, yes, he was from nobility in Germany. And he acted like a noble person. And I was just soaking it up. Oh my God, I
1: loved it. (laughs) And so then the night of the party... Was that the night where you found the picturesque vineyard afterwards?
0: Well, yeah. So the second night, there was yet another big gala party in a vineyard uh, wine room that looked like it was just so beautiful. And I was sitting next to him, of course, but he was kind of being aloof that evening. And I finally realized... It was because all of these fellow croquet players from around the world, whom he knew from various tournaments, they knew he was married. So he did not want to come off as, as being with me, per se, which, again, was very appropriate, very refined. And But then, then Sally, he made up for it afterwards. And he took me. We we found this place out by a vineyard, and made love in the car. <laughs> that wild kind of love you make in a car,
1: mm-hmm. and reminded you a little of Nicola. No, when you were in the vineyard with Nicola. Yes,
0: I know. I'd been in the olive grove with Nicola, and now I was by by the vineyard
1: with Carl. <laughs> Something oh about my. them vineyards and olives, huh? <laughs> <laughs> You're you're transporting me as you speak. Oh. Well, then, to add a little humor, how about that used condom that was found the next? Time? Oh my
0: God! What is so weird? So I said that I had friends in the area and and we had parked close by to where they lived. So the next day, I called my friends to chat and say hi, and the husband said to me. Inexplicably. I mean, why would, he said, you know, the strangest thing happened when I was on my run this morning. There was a used condom along the trail. I thought, Oh, holy shit. What what is he saying? Does he know it was me? Why would he <laughs> tell you that? <laughs> I I have no idea. Was he flirting
1: with you, Michelle? <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't I I don't know what it was about. I don't. That is it's really hilarious it's a hilarious image though. Okay, okay, okay. So then then the, the, the heating damsel in distress who couldn't take the heat, you poor thing, at that next hot day croquet event. Oh, so hot. But he took such good care of you. He knew, he recognized what was going on. He offered to drive you all the way home, which was how far away from where you were? Was it far? It's a hundred miles. That's a far drive. What a sweetheart. And, And so tell us what happened. Remind us what happened.
0: Oh, so he came over to me after the tournament was over and I was, I was like just spent. I've been sitting there for hours in the heat and I was just out of it. So he said, you know, I'd like to drive you home to Menlo Park and then I'll be able to leave the next, you know, tomorrow morning, he said, from the airport. So I was just so happy he said that. So poor Phyllis had to drive home alone, but here's Carl taking such lovely care of me. So he drove me home And then before we got to my house, he wanted to go to a good grocery store so he could buy the
1: things he needed to cook me a beautiful
0: dinner. Mm -hmm.
1: And I think he, he reminded you of the best part of your dad there, it seems like. Yeah, but
0: let me just interject something that is coming to mind as I speak. So this is how I want to be taken care of in a relationship you know, in an ongoing way. This was like a taste of it. But this is what my heart still yearns for, is a man who cares enough to want to care for me. And it was absolutely slendiferous. So yes, he did have that ability as my father to cook and want to cook. And so, you know, it linked him in my mind, to my father, which was also a plus.
1: Mm -hmm. So then he had to go back to the castle in Ireland. Poor thing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, County
0: Meath is where the Irish in Gun with the Winter from. So his castle was like Tara, you see. So the whole association for me was, this was Tara, because it was the same county and he had a castle, you know. And so it's like, it always reminded me of Gone with the Wind.
1: That's right. Yeah. No, it makes more sense now that you explain it that way. But he did keep in touch with you and he actually invited you to come to Ireland for his fiftieth birthday party. And I, I understand why you wondered how the heck that was gonna work if he was married. But you agreed to go and until for a variety of reasons you did not go, right? Or are, are you do you regret that you didn't go? Right. Well, yes, of course, because
0: it was one of those times, one of those rare times, where I didn't choose the adventure. I I didn't follow that. So, of course, I've always regretted it. It would have been a chance to see him. It would have been intriguing. It would have been Ireland in a castle in County Meath. I mean, of course I regret
1: it. And how would it have worked with his wife, though? I mean, you're right.
0: <laughs> Only you and I can guess Guinness. I
1: have no idea. Exactly. Then you give us a wonderful story about your father, who you really bring him to life in this episode for us. He had immigrant parents. He sounds like he had incredible chutzpah that put people off, but I think you said he was also so incredibly charismatic that people just fell in love with him. What a wonderful, interesting yeah. depiction of your dad. And he he raised you and your brother he pushed you hard, it sounds like. He was very competitive and confident and made you that way. Is that right? hmm A piece of him made you who you are, it sounds like.
0: Well, here's the deal. I was the older one and I was the girl. But he was trying to groom both of his children to be successful and assertive. But my nature was like his, and so I could do it. My brother's nature was not. And so the fact that my father pushed my brother overwhelmed him. And that's a whole other story that I'll get into later. But it worked in my case, what my father was trying to accomplish. It did not work for my brother. In fact, it was a real problem for him.
1: Well, it sounds like it worked in your case because you became incredibly successful in in business and a trailblazer. But it sounds like it also brought up a dichotomy for you. Which, in your words, you said, became difficult for you to be in a loving, lasting relationship and have children of your own. So explain that a little bit more. Was the two together never going to be possible for you in your mind? That's a very good question.
0: It's complicated for me still. Yeah. My father's program, I think I've said it over and over, was for me to be successful, not to be in a loving family situation. But I still had that yearning. You know, I still had that. But I guess I had concluded they weren't compatible and they wouldn't work together, which I believe right now to this yeah, at this point, I don't think that's true. But most of my life, I must have thought that they couldn't happen at once. And so I chose the independent part.
1: Well, I think you're a woman of your times because a lot of women then did not think they could do both, nor in a way could they. I mean, it's not just you, Michelle. A lot of women felt that way.
0: No, but most women in my era didn't ever think they were going to be successful in business. Their only real choice was to get married. So I don't think it was the same for most women. They, they chose to get married because that was their best option.
1: Right. Well, maybe a better way for me, to, a more succinct way for me to put it is the impossibility of both at the time. There may have been some truth to that. You know, where the possibility of both now is a little bit easier. It's still hard.
0: I don't think most women back then didn't think they were going to be.
1: They didn't even choose it.
0: No, they wouldn't even think of it. It wasn't yeah. possible.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, so the love bite that you add as an extra wonderful tidbit is so adorable, where after you had met Carly Rody wrote he couldn't come to the next tournament the following year. But you went anyway, and you met someone. What's the Jaguar? I'll never pronounce it right. The Jaguar story. Oh, I know. Yeah, that was that was so cute. He was absolutely
0: adorable. Dave was his name. And we had a lovely time. I mean, it was not the... Ah, romantic interlude is at what had been with Carl, but he was a sweet man, and he was a good croquet player and he was a fabulous dancer. And the thing that I found so cute was, you know, Americans say jaguar. That's not the way they say it in England, and of course, it's a British car. Uh-huh. So he taught me how to say it properly. And that was so sweet. Say it. Oh, he was sweet. Say it
1: the right way again.
0: Jaguar, Jaguar, <laughs> not jaguar.
1: Jaguar. That's fabulous. <laughs> so you'll never forget it. I will never forget it either. I don't know if I'll say it, but I'll never forget it. No, Sally, say it. You've got to say it. You've
0: got to say it right now.
1: Jaguar. 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 You've
0: got it. You've got to. Jaguar.
1: But just to, just to bring the Q&A part of our episode to a close stuck with, once again, Michelle, what strikes me is the detail with which you remember these moments and the moments that you had with Carl, and that you don't forget a single detail when someone like him made this kind of impression upon you, and that you treasure each and every one. And it's just delicious they're tidbits that, you know, we know they're gonna be more, and it just wets our appetite for more.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, Sally, it's quite a life, isn't it? Quite a quite life. life. Quite, and, quite a life. And yeah, and I you're right. This episode was happy for me because I got to talk about Carl and I got to talk about my father. So this was one of the episodes that was really, really happy for me. And there are many more to come, and I look forward to sharing them with with the listeners. And thank you, Sally, for being my my partner in crime. (laughs) Mo, being my partner in love, that's what you are.
1: Delighted to be, Michelle. Looking forward to the next. Okay.
0: Bye-bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Love Capades podcast. If you'd like to submit questions, please send them to michelle at lovecapades.com. And that's spelled M-I-C-H-E-L-E at L-O-V-E-C-A-P-A-D-E-S dot com. Also check out our Facebook page and website, both called Love Capades, for fun facts and groovy visual stuff. I am the author, Michelle Musi, and my co-host is Sally Kaplan. The Love Capades podcast is skillfully and playfully produced by StudioPod Media. You can find them at studiopodsf.com.